This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith who are organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. Hey, comrades, this is Heart of a Heartless World, your home for rich theological, political, and economic ideas that are good for both the soul and our very real material situations. I recently had the privilege of talking with Dr. David Bentley Hart, one of my favorite theologians, philosophers, and just all-around fascinating thinkers. He's known for his polemic, no-punch-pulled writing style, but in person, he was a genuinely wonderful guest, and I don't know if you can catch it in the edit, but I was laughing through this whole interview because he's just hes just a funny guy. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Before we jump in, I do want to remind you to join us in Springfield, Missouri on October 19th to the 21st for Theology Beer Camp. And yes, it is as fun and as nerdy as it sounds. Three days of live podcasting, craft beverages, and conversations with your favorite scholars in religion like Thomas J. Ord, Christy Whaley, Sarah Lane Ritchie, and our friend Jörg Rieger, along with many others. And if you use the code HEARTGODPOD, you get $25 off your ticket and you help support our podcast here at Heart of a Heartless World. It would be so fun to get a massive socialist presence in the house, so we really hope to see you there. Check it out at theologybeer.camp. And shoot us an email or message us on social media if you plan to go. We'd love to connect in person. For your listening pleasure and your spiritual goodness, here is Dr. David Bentley Hart. All right, welcome back, everyone. This is Heart of a Heartless World, and I'm Ralph, and I'm here today with Dr. David Bentley Hart, who many of you know as a provocative writer, a philosopher, a scholar in religious studies in Notre Dame, and a theologian. It's a privilege to have you on the podcast, Dr. Hart. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, First of all, uh, in case any listeners aren't familiar with your work, could you tell us about your interests and, uh, I was going to say your areas of expertise, but I don't know if you can narrow that down. Um, It's pretty wide. Basically baseball. (laughs) Well, you know, I publish in various fields, religious studies, philosophy, theology, fiction, literary criticism, music, um, baseball, as I mentioned. So I'm I'm sort of a dilettante. But I suppose my my academic field to religious studies and uh, philosophy, earlier, my earlier publications were more uh, in the realm of theology just by, well, I suppose just almost by accident. (laughs) But... uh, at the moment, I think my philosophical work is mostly philosophy of mind, and uh, just finished a book on that yesterday. Congratulations! So, I mean, writing a book on it. Yes, uh, Asian a- Asian religion and languages as well. As I said, my 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 training is in religious studies more than in philosophy. I mean, more than in theology, theology sorry. Yes, I, yes. I'm just waking up. It's only three in the afternoon. I <laughs> just, just rolled out of bed. So, uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. excuse. Um, and uh, so, yes, uh, 
also Asian languages and literatures. And I have studied Sanskrit and Pali and Chinese and Japanese, and I'm a master of none of them, <laughs> uh, with varying degrees of competence. My, my most deplorable of the four is, is Japanese, which I've only uh, in recent years begun really to delve into. Very good. As I'm sure you're aware, uh, Marx has this famous phrase about religion that gets quoted often that, uh, you know, religion is the opium of the people, the sigh of the oppressed creature, heart of the heartless world, soul of our soulless conditions. Um, and so we have... A, it's, very, it's actually a very tender passage, of course, in Marx. It's always a, yes. it's always treated as if it's, as, as if it's intended simply as a denunciation of religion, whereas, of course, it's a fairly... Uh, yes. Well, that's, that's precisely the, the, the point here. So we, we like to ask our guests um, a, a question kind of based on, on this, this quote. How, uh, how have you experienced religion as, on the one hand, an opiate, something that can maybe suppress liberative activity in the world, or as th that heart and soul uh, that, he, that he is getting at there? Well, I'm afraid there's not a, a clear-cut uh answer to that because of course it's both religion is a very complex phenomenon especially institutionalized religion but also uh, private spiritual experience can be either oppressive or, or liberating it um, uh, every bad thing you want to say about the powers the, the structures of power and religion is true Every good thing you want to say about the power of religion to uh, liberate uh, and and ennoble and c console, but also enlighten, is also true. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's not a unitary phenomenon, and like anything good in this world, it's uh, mixed uh, within the ambiguities of human history. So. Uh, even at its best, it can be conscripted into into projects of oppression. Even at its worst, uh, create impulses towards charity, kindness, community. So, yeah, indeed. And each tradition has its own particular strengths and and peculiar uh, blind spots as well. You're speaking from from the Orthodox tradition. Would you? How would you place that in your experience? Uh, yeah. Well, again, I mean, it's it's a mixed bag. Orthodoxy um, has at times been a powerful voice for the poor and the forgotten. At other times, it's been a powerful uh, implement in the hands of the rich and the despotic. It's uh, as as an institutional reality. Its spiritual depths may be boundless, but also it's uh, it's it has also historically. And at present, I mean, you look at Russia right now institutionally, uh, been complicit in just about any kind of social, political, cultural evil you can imagine. And I would say this is true of, of not just orthodoxy, obviously, but, but all of the, uh, the mainstream Christian traditions and all of the mainstream uh, religious traditions. In, in a few articles and on, on social media, you've made some pretty stark comments about your views on uh, specifically Christian socialism. Uh, I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could outline how that view came to be for you and what, what might a world look like where that economic and political philosophy is, is lived out. In other words, you know, give us the pitch for Christian socialism. 
Well, when I talk about Christian socialism, of course, I'm speaking specifically of a tradition that's almost exclusively British, <laughs> though it has, it, it appeared elsewhere, and it, but it's mostly in the Anglophone world and mostly in Britain. People like John Ruskin and, and William Morris and R.H. Tawney, it tended, to be honest, uh, far from being a kind of a wing of progressive politics in the way we think of it. I mean, this is, it stands outside the, the very uh, definitions of left and right we tend to have right. today. Right. Uh, John Ruskin was a, was a Tory and a monarchist, you know, it's uh, so... <laughs> It's hard to wrap your brain around in the states. <laughs> yeah, well, especially since in the, in the states there really is neither a conservative nor a, a progressive tradition. There are only two different kinds of of classical liberalism, right. or were until very recently, and when one of the parties decided, hey, let's try fascism instead. That that's a change of pace. Um, that's not what Ruskin or Morris or the young Tawney or others in this tradition talked about, and they did, simply didn't take, think in those terms. Uh, and Morris, of course, ceased to be a, a believing Christian, and, and Ruskin was ambiguously. So they all, they all, in their own ways, sort of clung fast to what they saw as the Christian moral tradition, but with varying degrees of uh, doctrinal conviction. But what they understood is, is that, that there is, before all else, community is real, society exists, and that we are all uh, implicated in one another, and that, our that, that, that uh, the language of rights and of freedoms has no meaning when separated from the language of the incumbency of moral claims made upon us by our neighbors. And that a just society, like, would reflect the sort of teachings that that Jesus of Nazareth uh, <laughs> uh, recorded as 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 uh, preaching in the um, synoptics, especially regarding justice for the poor uh, and liberation from from the power of debtors and courts. Common good, uh, you know. It, 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 now, what would a society look like? Well, it, it's not, you know, it's, it's not very easy to say. I mean, for instance, late in life, Tawney had to sort of compromise with some of his ideals because, of course, the Christian socialist tradition does not create, does not place great emphasis on the nation state right. as the dispositive power. It it it, it has uh, a language that we today might call subsidiarist. Uh, and that is that ideally much of the work of community and culture could be conducted from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. it, it, was, it was a philosophy, it was a political philosophy that emerged in an era in which there were still small, in which small local community was actually community. Right. And, but, you know, late in life, Tony, who's, you know, in the, is a 20th century man, more and more, uh, I had to to rely on the social, you know, the, the social democratic tradition as a means of righting the wrongs of the society, as the best one can do. Yeah. So I would say, in some degree, the question is moving towards that society. Uh, it would look a bit more like the social democratic tradition, right. with less of a trust in capital, 
uh, ultimately. I mean, that's the great weakness of social democracy in the post-war period is it's so dependent on uh, corporatist capital that it's that it's an ineffective critique sometimes of of the structures of power in capitalism. Mm. Um, but the ultimate ideal would be a society in which the common good and the common purse, in a sense, is is maintained as the principal aim of a just society hmm. to which all other considerations would have to be made subordinate and to some degree trusting in the power of community if it's set free uh, from the sort of constraints that, that society and the market tend to put on it. But other than that, I can't give you a specific notion of what it would look like. I mean, obviously... It, 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 for someone like Ruskin or Morris, it was a it was a, a modeled on a notion of the body of Christ. So it's always going to have a mystical dimension uh, that that has to be approached more tacitly, poetically, more creatively. That can't be laid out in the form of a precise system uh, in advance. That sounds uh, pretty difficult on on most modern ears. Um, so yeah, you're talking about, well, we're all pretty much fatalists these days, yeah, aren't we? Yeah. But I mean, what we're doing now obviously is, is, uh, devastating. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's in a lot of ways, some of what this small movement inside of DSA, just the, the religious socialism is trying to, trying to say, Hey, we can't ignore the, the metaphysical, the spiritual. Well, let me let me say this about this small movement. There is no other path to an actual effective socialist order. The notion, the idea that there are there is not a spiritual. You can be as vague as you like about it, but that there isn't a spiritual and metaphysical rationale underlying socialism. If you deny that, then ultimately you're going to lose. You're going to concede. Secularism cannot provide an index of justice that will survive uh, the, the the sort of the relentless demands made on people's attention and people's adherence that that the market can. Mm. The stupidest book of philosophy I think I've read in the past ten years was the one. What's the, the name of that Swedish philosopher teaches here? This world. Um, Hagland was it? It's uh, I, I I've even forgotten his name because I thought it was such an appallingly silly book. He spends the entire. There's one good portion in it in which uh, he argues for the need for a socialist redistribution of avenues of wealth and of wealth itself, and then he spends the rest of the time explaining why this requires a totally this world commitment. And if you believe in another world, then obviously you have no reason to be committed to. Which of course is absolutely the opposite of everything we've ever seen historically. That is, that uh, that actually a belief in seeing things in the light of community has a, is much more effective at making people open their hearts and minds to the possibility of radical compassion and, and, and radical concern for others. I mean, just go to any place in the world where there's real palpable human suffering and poverty and count up the number of atheists among the people who work uh, in volunteer organizations, you're going to find it's, it's, it's rather pathetic by comparison to the people of religious conviction. Whereas, you know, you find Christians and Sikhs and Jews and Muslims and, and all sorts of people from religious backgrounds to whom 
it's obvious that their that their commitment to seeing human beings as spiritual beings uh, uh, in in the light of eternal truths uh, is precisely what gives them the strength and the resolve and the practical wisdom to do the good that they do. So if it's a small movement in the DSA or such, it's also the only one, to my mind, <laughs> that has a chance of having any success in, in, in the foreseeable future or in any future. You recently released the, the second edition of your uh, translation of, of the New Testament. Got, got it right here. I'd really love to uh, explore some of the pretty radical implications of some of those translation decisions, as well as some of the ways that more standard biblical translations tend to sterilize the, the text to make it more palatable, uh, but end yeah. up making it rather impotent at, at the same time. This is true, yeah. You talk quite a bit about the strangeness of the text itself and the desire of most translators to make the text into something that ends up trying to relate to a modern person but ends up removing the substance, which makes the text available for pretty much any ideological banner you like, from slavery to Christian nationalism to atomic bombs and capitalism. So you write about your desire to to subvert that reflex. Tell us about that process and uh, what you feel like is important about this translation work. Well... The truth of the matter is that decisions have been... You realize the Bible was not, of course, translated into vulgar tongues. I mean, it was translated into the Vulgate, which meant Latin at an early period, but it wasn't translated into uh, vulgar tongues, and it certainly wasn't available as a bound and printed volume that anyone had access to until the early modern period. And by that time, not only all sorts of doctrinal decisions had been reached, which led to... Uh, translations that, that that fortified dogmatic tradition more than they actually faithfully reflected what the Greek was saying, but also considerable social, cultural, political developments too are reflected in the translations. And certainly the, the content of the New Testament is far more socially radical than you would guess from uh, from even recent translations that have less excuse for um, following established traditions. Um, Even the way we think about words that are essential to Christian, like kinonia, or, well, if you have a barbaric Erasmian pronunciation, you'd say koinonia, but kinonia, um, you know, commonality, community. I mean, in in terms of the New Testament, the kinonia or kinonikos are other words that, that, that have this root of of the common in it are not that far from communism. I'm not, mm-hmm. you know, I'm saying that to be provocative, but I mean, it is, it is about a life in common, having all possessions in common, counting nothing as your own. This is the sort of language that's used. Uh, with a pretty ferocious critique of anyone who remains rich, you know, as, while others are, are, are in, uh, in misery or in hunger. It, it it astonishes me, but also, I mean, things that you would think, uh, I, I think the example that I always find myself returning to uh, is the Sermon on the Mount and especially the Lord's Prayer, because the the, uh, the translations over the years have been so sanitized that you have absolutely no idea what Christ is actually talking about. Things that are very concrete, uh, 
statements about uh, social and political and economic relations, yet uh, turned into, frankly, rather vacuous spiritual bromides. Right. By the, by, uh, and now there's some bits of the text that are very hard to do that to. I mean, you can't, for instance, in the book, the book of Luke, which is the most uh, relentlessly uh, socially conscientious of the Gospels, is very hard to hide what's being said in the Magnificat or in the Sermon on the Plain when when Christ follows the Beatitudes with <laughs> declarations of woe. woe for the rich and the. So I mean, you you can't expunge it entirely. I mean, if you even with the translations generally available, you you should be aware that something's going on there. But when you go back to the original Greek, a great deal more is going on. Much of the, the early parts of the Sermon on the Mount are incredibly practical counsels for the poor on how to avoid being despoiled by rich uh, creditors, especially, and a corrupt legal system over which, the, 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 that serves their interests rather than those of, of, of the children of Israel, that is, basically the poor, the children of God. But do you want me to give examples? Or? Well, there, well, there are two, and you kind of already— hit on them but the first one um, let's talk about debt you you wrote in an article in hmm, talking about the lord's prayer and you say this that for those who seek the kingdom of god every year is a sabbatical year every year is the jubilee and if if you're not aware the implications of those texts they have to do with debt right so yeah. talk to us about how jesus and the new testament authors thought about debt and why it was such a a central theme in the New Testament, that is if you don't translate it out. <laughs> well, of course, debt was the principal means, and still is today, the principal means of converting the poverty of the poor into revenues for the rich. Sounds and We familiar. still do this. We, the the, the um, practices of credit and debt that we permit today are, are obscene. Uh, credit card companies issue cards, uh, to people who will use them to create a, a principal debt they can't discharge, they miss a payment, and their interest rates skyrocket, and they spend forever and a day attempting to pay off the interest on a principal that's now uh, inaccessible to them. And then they now have such bad credit that they can't buy a house, they can't get a car, right. they can't do anything. And so they have to, and so they have to depend on other avenues of credit as well. And uh, yeah, uh, debt is is the primary means of reducing the poor to a commodity in society that lo discovered long before the iron law of wages, for instance, or <laughs> the rise of the industrial era and the labor markets. You already knew that the poverty of the rural poor especially, uh, and, and this is why even in the law of Moses, there are, and why in, in Jewish, in, in Hebrew tradition, in Jewish tradition, there's such clear-cut laws against despoiling people with unfair debt, usury, and, and the like, you know. This is, uh, it's understood that there's an intrinsic injustice in this, and why giving gifts, setting the bondsman free, and basing your relations on gifts and reciprocal obligations of a different kind is much, is, is much better than a, than a society that admits this kind of debt. And that's why also the year of, of Jubilee is part of it, because part of the, the rule there is that all debts are forgiven, right? 
of course, in in Jesus's time, there there had been those who had gotten around this with the, with the connivance of the courts by creating an escrow system, in which debts could be put out of circulation during the <laughs> jubilee, so they didn't have to be forgiven. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> uh, you know. Oh, and, and you know, it's like it's it's like a credit card today giving you a, a credit holiday. You don't have to pay this month, um, in order to do a, you know, a, but uh, but not actually. Lowering, canceling any of the debt, yes, right, exactly. uh, still allowing the principal to to accrue, and this was a crisis at the time of the Galilee. For instance, you know, haven't sometimes said that you know there, there's no critique of slavery in the New Testament. Well, there's not in the ideological sense, in that no one, I mean, that was the structure of society. There was no such thing as ideology or the notion of reordering society. What there is, is an attack on the wealthy who enslave. And and a very serious attempt to keep them out of slavery, and much of Jesus's uh, teachings to the poor of the Galilee and of, and of Judea consists in practical counsels to prevent them from falling into such debt that they end up in debtor's prison or maybe even end up in slavery. Yes. And while condemning the wealthy who own such things as slaves, there is not, you know, the notion that there's no critique of slavery in the New Testament is just an anachronistic understanding. Both of the situation of the time and in the language of the text, but in the in the translations we have, say of the Lord's Prayer, to get back to yes, where this yeah. conversation, where this question began, uh, look at the second part of the prayer. You know, uh, 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 give us this day our daily bread, right? Well, that doesn't just mean daily bread in the in the. Um, Anodyne sense, well, not either in the spiritual sense, but even in the anodyne sense of just, you know, see to my needs for the day. I mean, Epiosion, that's enough bread to keep you alive for the day. This is already a prayer of the poor. But then when it talks about ophelimata, okay, debts, not, not trespasses, it's not, the, the latter part of the prayer doesn't have to do with trespasses. It literally has to do with excuse us our debts. As we excuse those that, because of course, if you're going to enter into the circle of justice, you can't you can't be a creditor any more than you have the right to be a debtor. Excuse us our debts as we excuse our debtors, and deliver us from the evil man. Okay, Poniros. This figure of Oponiros appears in the Sermon on the Mount three times. Okay, and is always mistranslated. Uh, in this standard, it, it, it does not say, you know, lead it, 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 you know, don't lead us into trial. It, lead us not into temptation is how the, the standard reader, okay, that's not what it says. You know, don't bring us to trial. And part of the, one of the kind of pirasmos that's being talked about is definitely the sort of, the sort of actual court trial. We would say these are the, the, the tribulations of the poor. Don't bring us to the to the questioning. Don't bring us to the to the um, assize, but deliver us from the evil man. Now, the evil man earlier has been identified as a con man, not evil, but the evil man, or the evil one, but it means a man, has been identified already as a con man who uses elaborate oaths hmm. to cheat you. That's mm -hmm. why actually going on, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be yes. Anything yep. more extravagant than this comes from a rogue, is how it should be sort of translated. It's, it's always strange. anything beyond this comes from the evil one, suggesting that what Jesus is, is, is saying is don't make oaths because oaths are kind of demonic. Right. They come from the devil. That's not what he's saying. He's saying speak plainly because it's only people who are trying to cheat you 
mm-hmm. who make these elaborate oaths about their own honesty. Mm-hmm. Okay, don't fall prey to these people. Also, you know, you know, resist not evil. That's not what he says. Do not try to fight back against the evil man by force. I mean, that's literally what it means. Sam, you use force as as your remedy because you're going to lose. Mm. It's a practical claim there. I'm sorry. I mean, I know we'd like to believe there's just a, a counsel to pacifism. It's not. It's very because it's in the context of a series of things, like when you're being dragged to court. Make peace with the with with the plaintiff before you get to the court. It's not because it's not simply a spiritual counsel uh, regarding uh, you know getting along. That's nice too, but what he's saying is settle out of court because once he gets you in the court, you will be at the mercy of a corrupt system. Mm. And he will hand he will the, the judge will hand you over to the bailiff. They'll put you in jail and they'll rob you of everything you've got. <laughs> so if you have to even to the degree of give more than you, you should, make that settlement before you get into the court. You see, the, 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 so the whole structure of the way we think about the Sermon on the Mount, we make it sound like it's simply a, a, a catalog of pieties about good behavior. Right. And about seeking, and, and there's that in there too. There's also a kind of economic antinomianism in it. You know, look at the lilies of the field. Mm-hmm. Don't fret about, you know, it's 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 almost a command not to be industrious. Hmm. That life is more important than wealth. Um, that that you know God God provide live in justice with your fellows. Don't worry about gaining more material possessions all the time because that's what will get you ultimately trapped into this cycle of debt. And I'm not saying this isn't my idiosyncratic. <laughs> uh, uh, this actually just literally what the text is saying at at a level that's a very obvious if you know the Greek and you know the time and you don't presume this history of translation and this history of social accommodation with power and prosperity. Hmm. Well, you go as far as as even to say that this is not a prayer for everyone to pray. That you know this most famous prayer in the world, it's a prayer for the poor. It's for the poor. It's for them to pray. It's not a prayer for the poor in the sense that you're praying for the poor. It's a prayer given to the poor to To pray pray. over against their oppressors, the wealthy. That's very good. Let's uh, let's return to to the the kinania, this word that often gets translated to to fellowship or brotherhood or something more inoculate than that. but the word has has a pretty radical use um, from what from what you found as you were kind of digging into this in the context. I mean, it's just it's it's a principal virtue of the early Christians, and it's clearly tied to the sharing of goods. You know, it, it, you know, I've seen like remember to be canonicus, you know, <laughs> translated as you know, remember to be generous. That's not what it says. Huh. It's Remember to be you know, almost like communalist. Remember that 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 your wealth belongs to, it has to be given. You know that you you don't have a right to it yourself. I mean, Jesus says, you know, if you count it this uh, as your own, you can't be my disciples. You know, uh, and this is pretty much the ethos of the early church. The didache, yes. you know, says very clearly if you uh, if you you know you want to be wealthy and you count what you own as your property rather than belonging. So well, then you're not really, you're not really, to, you're not really a member of the church. Hmm. And the funny thing I find interesting about this is that this 
rhetoric was so foundational in the early centuries of Christianity that it, it persisted as rhetoric well past the period of its efficacy. Hmm. That the greatest hmm. of the church fathers who still believe this, who are preaching, you know, Basil of Caesarea, right. John Chrysostom, yep. Gregory of Nazianzus, and I've said it before, it's getting to be a threadbare joke, but I'll say <laughs> it again, speak in terms so radical that it makes Bakunin seem like a tepid conservative. Uh, they, they, Basil said, you think you have a right to any wealth? You have a right to none. You just have the wealth because you got there first, but the earth belongs to all of us, you know, everyone. God has given his bounty to everyone. You, if you have two coats while the man, while there's a man out there who has none, then you've stolen that from it, that, that coat from him. I mean, this is not, this is not about, uh, you know, there's absolutely a no moderation in the rhetoric used. It's that you who are wealthy are thieves. Hmm. Property in this scale is theft. And that's simply, and that, but of course what's happened at that point is though the, the people are saying, the fellows are saying this, mean it. Because the, the Cappadocian fathers came from wealthy backgrounds and they gave up their wealth. You know, Basil, uh, Macrina, Gregory of Nyssa, they did not live in, in opulence. They created hospitals, they created monasteries and convents and freed uh, household slaves. And, and, you know, and Gregory, in fact, preached a sermon in 379. It's the closest thing we have to an actual ideological denunciation of slavery in the whole of human, the first one in the whole of human history. They were not, you know, they, they could have, they could have, but they believed what they were saying. But they're saying it in an age in which it's become almost liturgical. Hmm. You could preach this way, John. I mean, not that the, the people in the court didn't understand what was going on. There's a reason why they kept getting kicked out of their Episcopal right. cities. Right. But John Chrysostom is saying these things to the Byzantine court in, in Constantinople at Ayasophia, you know, basically. The, uh, they're, they're the heart of the empire saying this. But of course... At that point, there's an interesting, it's an interesting aspect of human psychology is that people could go to church and hear this, and they hear it penitentially, and hearing it every Sunday that they should care for the poor, in a sense, becomes a kind of penitential discipline, a kind of play acting that, that allows them to return to their own lives uh, thereafter with a certain degree of, uh, you know, moral complacency. And that's the beginning, you know. You see that that already, the 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 loss of the sense of the radicalism of the early church occurs not when the rhetoric has to be forcibly suppressed. It's when the rhetoric has already become formal in the ears of most Christians, because they they've come to think of their faith as a redoubtable pillar of the society to which they belong, which is a society of power and privilege and wealth and violence. Yes. Well said. I, I think the specifically that, that word kinania, the fact that for me growing up, we would have meetings in a fellowship hall and that's, you know, it's a poorly decorated room in an industrial building with tax breaks. That's what we use the word kinania to mean. <laughs> Uh, that's, you know, a meeting place for people to have some sort of social connection instead of a, and this is, I'm quoting you now, but a precise set of practices within the early Christian communities, a social arrangement that was considered integral 
to to being part of that tradition. It's yeah. uh, it's a shift. It is. Hey, I mean, we live in America. This is a country where where you have a huge, I mean, millions of of people who think they're Christians and believe that that Jesus wants them to be wealthy and own lots of very, uh, very powerful firearms. And that's, you know, I mean, it's amazing uh, what you can convince yourself of, uh, contrary to what's there on the page. But in this case, yeah, you were also the victim of, of translation. Is there anything else you're burning to share about uh, this translation work or about uh, Christian socialism? I think another point you can make, for instance, that I've made in another book, is that uh, there was also there also a certain degree of um, political, social, and ideological interest in the way subsequent doctrine of, of eschatology developed. For instance, I mean, you know, one of the things that stands out when you're translating the Gospels or Saint Paul from uh, the original as you realize that the, the later picture we have of say behavior you will suffer eternal damnation is is itself uh simply a set of her- hermeneutical errors that nonetheless were useful <laughs> to an institution uh, yes to an institution of, of governance yeah you know the saint paul had no idea of an eternal hell, or for that matter, of an eternal heaven in the sense that we mean it now. I mean, he thought of an age to come that would be one of renewal, and uh, it, and sometimes he spoke in terms that were clearly universalist, as if everyone would be saved, and sometimes he spoke as it made it sound as if those who weren't uh, part of of this this uh, new creation would pass away with the old. Not that he says that explicitly, but that's... But one thing he didn't believe in was a place, you know, the, the, the bad people get sent, sent to to suffer forever and ever and ever. And also Jesus, you know, yeah, how many times that you pick up the King James and it talks about hell all over the place. But of course, that's not what he was talking about when he when he talked about the uh, Gehenna, the gay the Gehenna, the, uh, the, Gehenna the, he's speaking very much of, of uh, the way he's, you know, of a valley in Judea outside Jerusalem that became a symbol for Isaiah and Jeremiah of intra-historical calamity, in which, you know, all these these images he's using of angels, of ours, you know, that, that, that he's talking about the destruction that's coming in history and the corpses that will be burnt and devoured by worms. And, you know, he's using the language of the prophets, but he too is not talking certainly about what later became mythologized in, in Christian thought as this terror uh, that we should carry through life, that if we get it wrong, the God of love will see to it that we suffer eternally. You know? So the more, you know, when you get back to the original and you, you find, you know, well, there's, there's no word that corresponds to hell. Well, there's a word that corresponds to a valley of destruction in history. There's a word that corresponds to the realm of death from which we have to be liberated. In the Gospel of Luke, you have the rich man and Lazarus there in Sheol and Hades, one in a place of comfort, the other in a place of distress. But it's not about it's not a picture of an eternal destiny of souls. You know, it's it's a picture of the realm of the dead as taken from the book of Enoch, which was, you know, second temple apocalyptic literature. And then uh, you know, that that it's that realm from which St. Paul believes that everyone has to be saved, the realm of death. 
Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which when you go back to the translation, you find um, not only that you're, you're inhabiting a different cosmic frame, in a sense. I mean, the world that, to which uh, Paul and the early Christians belonged was one in which there was sort of a, a hierarchy of powers, both in the heavens above the earth, that is, there were powers that ruled over the nations that were not necessarily fallen in the way we think of as like demons and devils, but rather just incompetent or mutinous angels, they needed to be put back into the proper order. That's what, you know, 1 Corinthians 15 says, they'll be ordered again in the proper order under, a, and that there were, but that this hierarchy extended down into, into human and civic affairs. And so there's a complicity between these, these powers on high and the political powers that reign over this world. Well, we don't think in those terms anymore, but it's easy to see how we could carry the ethos forward. Absolutely. I mean, I, I have no problem with the notion of spiritual realities that really exist. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm a rank supernaturalist in the sense because I, I, I don't believe that we know we have any reason for assuming we were more enlightened in these in these areas than than, than other peoples and other cultures and many that still exist in this war you know, in our time. But what I mean is that that, it, that we, too, can see that there are hierarchies of power and injustice and self-interest that operate as hierarchies. It's not just, you know, the, the problems are not of evil, it's not simply an individual thing. It's a structural reality. And again, this is something that the Christian socialist tradition, that, uh, that British Christian socialist tradition, I think, understood with extreme acuity that we're battling not with flesh and blood but with powers and principalities means that that are structures of evil that become self-perpetuating that need to be undone that need to be that need to be reconstructed or, or the society requires reconstruction you cannot achieve the good simply by asking of each individual conscience that it behave with prudent charity that the structures themselves create the, con the the conditions and the processes of evil from which we're to be liberated, and you know that's very much the Pauline view that 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 there's a, there's a whole well if cosmos means proper order there there's a sort of a cosmos that has been that has uh, the, in which we exist right now in which everything is disordered but that disorder is very organized. Uh, in the form of both spiritual and political powers. Yeah, and I think the in all of this something there's like a thread here that in in the ancient world the idea that uh, you know the self is this isolated individual is just so it's such a foreign oh. idea that you're <laughs> instead you're this permeable web of connections. Uh, oh yeah, it's, it's it is absolutely meaningless in ancient. First of all, yeah, you belong to. A people, a family, a cosmos, you know, the Stoics, before the Christians, tried to universalize this sense of connectedness. They talked of the cosmopolis as if the whole cosmos is a city. And the Christians had, you know, drew on Stoic yeah. thought. Yeah. Paul, Paul drew heavily Paul, yeah. on Stoic metaphysics, but I think also on Stoic ethics. He saw it as a way of framing the gospel for, for Gentiles. But also, I, I've heard... <laughs> apologists for kind of libertarian, they think themselves <laughs> Christian, say, well, you know, what what the gospel says is that that we ha you know it doesn't say that you know it's not there's no warrant for socialism there because it's all about individual charity it's about private, not public uh, um, association. So this is totally unknown in antique Jewish thought. The notion that the the coveted community 
uh, can be can be divided between the social and political on one hand and the privately discretionary on the other is is so anachronistic that it, that, that it defies invective. I, I, I cannot say uh, how low an opinion I have of, of, a, of an argument that, that starts from those premises, that, that neither ontologically nor religiously, covenantally, yeah. morally, yeah. is there such a thing as the self Determining individual who is the, the, the sole locus of moral responsibility. We are all responsible hmm. together as a community, as a society, as a body. And within that, we become responsible individuals. Uh, but but it, it ain't all about us. Lastly, you know, people can do a quick Google search for for any of your works. Um, but is there a topic you'd like to... Oh, it wouldn't be a quick Google search. Oh, there yeah. so works out there. I suffer from a, a neurotic need to put words on paper <laughs> so, or on the screen. Well, could you, could you narrow it down? Well, you, you mentioned uh, you were talking there for a bit about hell, uh, Gehenim, uh, your, your work, uh, That All Shall Be Saved. Uh, it's maybe the, the most fun book that I've read on hell. So you've got that going for you. Highly recommend paperback edition though because it has an important preface that was added after the the first printing it just i think uh, adds um it adds to the argument and it clarifies a couple things very good yeah so any anything else any other uh specific works that would maybe tie into this i would maybe mention i i think the a lot of this the conversation around socialism specifically uh, was from some of your articles in the theological territories. Yeah, that's, that's uh, true. So that's that's pretty helpful. Well, of course, I'm always trying to get people to read my fiction. To be honest, so uh, you know. But, well, but, give me the give me the pitch. Well, it's just it's very good. <laughs> the best volume of stories I've written is is coming out um, next year. So I, maybe I should wait till then. But I think my book Roland and Moonlight and. Actually, curiously enough, is a vision of of reality that I I think in an odd way ties into this. It has to into the lilies of the field side of the mm-hmm. teachings of Christ on the social issues. Though theological territories probably has the greatest amount of material directly relevant to what we've been talking about today. Uh, you are uh, oh no no that's not the one that all shall be saved. I think though also curiously enough, I was convinced of this by. Uh, my friends, uh, China Mieville and Richard Seymour, they both unexpectedly read that book and saw it as having actually a kind of, um, especially Meditation 3 on what it is to be a person, having having also a kind of uh, uh, ethical meaning, a moral meaning that can, that can be extended to these sorts of political and social considerations or issues. I suppose, yeah, th- those would be the places to look. And... Uh, have a socialist reader, Christian socialist reader, coming out from Yale at some time. But it hasn't. We haven't put it in the final manuscript. And I am, I do have a project uh, emerging at present uh, on um, Christian cosmopolitanism, uh, to use the the term that I the, the Stoic term. But I think that because right now there are these weird movements like integralism and Christ and and. Uh, things they call themselves national uh, conservatism that can trying to contend with 
modernity by by creating these rather hideous parodies of Christianity, whereas I, you know I think the true ethos of Christianity is a is, is something like Stoic cosmopolitanism, but still more radical. So that will be forthcoming. Amazing, Dr. Hart. Thank you so much for for joining. It's been a pleasure. Well, good to meet you. Um, take care. <laughs> All right, there are two innings left, so I'm going to go catch the end of the game. The Orioles are ahead by three runs, but it's the Dodgers, so you don't know. They're pretty hard. To... <laughs> All right, well, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. All right, catch you later. Thanks for listening, everyone. Remember to check out theologybeer.camp and use the promo code HEARTGODPOD. Solidarity, everybody. This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World. Get connected and learn more by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our website, religioussocialism.org. Cheers. (laughs) Yes.